This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good evening. Nice to see you all again. I'm still James Hallows from The Atlantic. I'm here with Chris Anderson. I'm going to do a minimal amount of setup for this session because I think you're going to have something interesting in a related and yet different way from what we've been talking about. Uh, earlier today and in other sessions of the Atlantic Meets Pacific over the years. Many people here probably know of Chris Anderson from his many years as editor-in-chief of Wired, from your books The Long Tail, Free, Makers, uh, which came out recently. You may be less familiar with his recent role as an, a maker himself, as the head of 3D Robotics and one of the leading drone producers in the world. So Chris Anderson is going to tell us about why we should think of drones as a source of benefit to mankind, of innovation, of economic uh, productivity, and all the rest. So Chris, let me first ask you, why did you switch from being a very influential tech world journalist to becoming a manufacturing uh, startup entrepreneur? Uh, You leave the glamour of journalism. Uh, It's a case of parenting gone horribly wrong. (laughs) Um, I, uh, I've got five kids, and I'm, I'm, my, my wife and I are trained as scientists, and we're always trying to get them interested in science and technology. And this one weekend, um, you know, about five years ago, I thought, um, you know, I got these boxes in and wired this. Uh, one was a Lego Mindstorms robotics kit. Has anyone ever played Lego Mindstorms? It's pretty cool. And the other was this, like, remote-control airplane. And I thought, this is going to be great. I'll, I'll, we're going to build a robot on Saturday. We're going to fly a plane on Sunday. What could possibly go wrong? Um, well, here's what went wrong. Um, Hollywood has ruined robotics for children. <laughs> you cannot, com- you know, real robotics is hard, and yeah. we spent all morning building this little tribot that, uh, you know, could kind of basically, after you program it, will roll up against a wall and back away. And the kids are like, come on, we've seen Transformers, <laughs> right? And then, and then we went to the park to fly a plane, and I flew into a tree, and, and you know, that confirmed their doubts about me. Um, and, and I was just thinking about sort of how could that have gone better? How could we have come up with a cooler robot and, and, and a better flying plane? And I thought, huh, what if the Lego flew the plane? What if we'd, uh, you know, it seems to have the right, see, these kind of sensors that came, yeah, these Lego Mindstorms are kind of cool. They have accelerometers and gyroscopes and magnetometers and Bluetooth and ARM processors, and it's pretty awesome what toys are. And I thought, well, gosh, sort of sounds like an autopilot to me. So I like literally Googled autopilot, and there was, like, complicated math, which I didn't understand. And I thought, well, let's just do it. And so I said, kids, one last thing. We're going to build a drone on the ta- <laughs> you know, out of plastic parts <laughs> on the table. And it, uh, it, it actually kind of worked. And uh, today, that, the world's first Lego UAV is in the Lego Museum in Billund. The children lost interest instantaneously. And I went down the rabbit hole. And now I run a Tijuana drone factory. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> so... so <laughs> So much as Hollywood has ruined robotics for children, one could argue that U.S. foreign policy has ruined drones for the, the world public. People hear the word dr- drone, and you know all the connotations that, that come to mind. Why should we think of drones as a realistic technology and as a beneficial development? Well, if, if, if my company and, the, and our kind of companies like us and our community at DIY Drones do our job, you, you know, a generation will not remember that drones were once military technology in the same way they don't remember that the internet was once military yeah. technology or GPS or, or even the computer for that matter. Yeah. Um, this, you know, a drone is, just to get our terminology right, a drone is an autonomous aircraft. That is a, that is a what we call, the phrase is actually optionally piloted. You're a pilot. Um, our job is to put you out of business. Um, Thanks. Everybody's trying to do that you know, for journalism. <laughs> that too. <laughs> 
ro- ro- robot riding as well. Um, uh, so um, what drones can do is what robots can do, which is jobs that are dull, dirty, and dangerous. But basically, they, they take the drudgery. Out. I mean, if, think, of, think, of, think of piloting like riding a horse. Do it for fun, not to get a job done. Um, uh, air, aircraft, in the same way that autonomous cars are safer cars than drivers, driver driven cars, um, autonomous aircraft it can be safer and more effective. And this is, you know, basically cameras and sensors are everywhere gathering big data except for the skies, which are empty. And they're empty for reasons that you've written yeah. about many, many times, which is that it's basically expensive and dangerous yeah. to put things in the air because typically a human is associated. Um, that uh, drones today, just to, just to kind of, you know, what we, what we make or and the rest of industry is uh, multi-copter, you know, helicopters and airplanes that cost about $500, mm-hmm. that weigh about two pounds, that are made out of foam, um, uh, and are sort of military-grade in their capabilities, but designed entirely for peaceful yeah. um, you know, purposes like agriculture. So you have written about and seen various modern technologies through their life cycles. Uh, you, about the tablet computer, you've written about mm-hmm. that and wired over, over time, the, the PC, the Internet. You've chronic- How should we think about the stage of maturity? of the drone industry, in the basic technology, in the market applications, in the bubble aspects exactly. of it, et cetera. Great question. We are in 1983. Mm. So the personal computer, so like looking at the, at the personal computer as a historical analogy, yeah. um, homebrew computing club. So yeah. the, personal, the, computer, sorry, the computer was a mainframe and it was expensive and it was for the few. And then there was this chip called the Intel 88, I think. Or, yes. 8080? or was it Zilog? Well, maybe. It's, it? I can't remember. Whatever one was in someone in this. Uh, 8,000? <laughs> 8008, um, 8008, um, which became available. And then Jobs and Wozniak and these bunch of, you know, you know, dirty hippies in the homebrew computing club came up with, they decided to make basically the worst computer in the world. Um, but it was the only computer in the world that regular people could yeah. use. Um, it was not nearly as powerful as the mainframes, but it was accessible. And that was 77. Yeah. And um, it got better and better and better until the Macintosh in 1984, where it became easy enough to use that, that it sort of took the complexity out of it. I think we're about 1983. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to say we have come up with the Macintosh of drones quite yet, but we're right on the verge. And um, if that's the case, then, you know, the, then you know, right around 1984 in the computer industry, we kind of figured out what computers were for. Mm-hmm. It became easy enough that regular people could come up with their own applications, and we invented you know, spreadsheets and d- databases and, and email and video games and all that kind of stuff. And I think that democratization moment is right where we are. Yeah. So I'm going to give a sort of 30-second setup for the question I'm about to mm-hmm. ask you. The last time I dealt with your magazine, Wired, was a fabulous package that came out about six months before the original iPad was introduced. And so yeah. that would have been, what, two and a half, three years ago, when it, whenever it was. So, so that recently in technological history, there was a debate package in Wired about whether there was any market for tablets. And I, fortunately, I was in the pro camp. I was saying, I've seen fellow pilots using these things. I think they can work. But half the people said, no, these things will, will, will never, never catch on. My point is, by definition, we don't know what yeah. the, the market, markets will be. But what do you imagine five years from now, ten years from now, the applications of your current technology might be? Um, by far the biggest one came as a complete surprise to me, yeah. um, which is once we started putting these things out there, um, users came up with these things like, I mean, one of the functions they have is they can follow you. They, you, they, you have your phone and, they, and, and you, just, you just sort of say, follow me. Literally, you press a button and say, follow me, and they follow you and keep a camera focus on you. So windsurfers and kite surfers use this. as uh-huh. If you like a GoPro, you'll like a GoPro yeah. with wings even better. <laughs> um, 
and so you know this is the droid you were looking for. Um, but then, then these other, then these farmers um, said, you know, this is actually a great tool for crop surveys. And I was like, crop what? And they said, come to the farm and I'll show you. And I like stepped foot on a farm for the first time, not for the first time, but basically professionally uh, for the first time about uh, about a year and a half ago, and was completely blown away by how big that opportunity is. We, the, you know, the theme of this session is big data. And, you know, drones are going to be one of the biggest mm. sources of big yeah. data in the biggest industry in the world, which is agriculture. Um, you know, what these do is they take cameras and they put them over fields. And what that gives the farmer is information about the consequences of their farming choices. Mm. So water and chemicals and growth patterns and planting mm -hmm. strategies and all this kind of stuff. You know, what's happened is once upon a time, farmers would walk fields and they knew what was going on. Then big ag and, you know, consolidation yeah. of agriculture and fewer and fewer people on the farms. You get these massive farms. And they have, you know, they, they basically plant it with robots. By the way, those tractors drive themselves. Yeah. And the cows milk themselves with robot milking machines. And it's all been robotic. Um, but they don't have this, they haven't closed the loop. They don't know what's going on in, you know, in the middle of the field because, again, it's too big. Um, the way to find out is to not sprinkle sensors everywhere, but instead fly the sensors mm -hmm. to it, which is to say basically do crop surveys on a daily or hourly or weekly basis. And you can do it with regular cameras, you can do it with infrared cameras, near-infrared cameras, or, you know, something called um, normalized differential vegetation index, a, yeah. a phrase I learned about <laughs> six months ago. Um, and, and you can now see the fields in a way the farmer can't. You can now see the fields through these infrared lenses, which shows the health of the plants, the chlorophyll, um, which gives them information yeah. that basically could... Um, allow them to use water more efficiently and use less chemicals. And, you know, fundamentally, we spray uh, fungicides yeah. and pesticides and things like that prophylactically. Yeah. We spray them on the by the calendar, not because there's an infection, but because, right. this, because, because you, the, the cost of missing an infection is the loss of a crop. So we, 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 we have increased the chemical load in our in environment and our food because we have a positive mm -hmm. data. What drones can do is... Limit is, is basically give you instantaneous feedback. You don't need to spray fungicide because you don't have a fungal mm -hmm. infection. And the moment you do well, have a fungal infection, yep. you'll know about it and you'll spray there. So it's, you know, I, I laugh about it. That when I got into this, I thought it was the future of flight. I think drones may actually be the, food, the future of food. So, so there's a related technology I saw in Sioux Falls, South Dakota about a month ago. It's GPS-guided tractors, and they can re record the position of each feed precisely enough. They go fertilize that dot and not, not the whole field. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, there's the, the Silicon Valley agricultural robotics community, of which I now part. <laughs> Again, who knew? Um, but yeah, these tractors, I mean, you know, if you go into a modern farm today, those tractors, um, you go inside the cabin... They're rolling entertainment centers. They've got these, these big screen TVs, and they're air-conditioned, and the, dry, the farmers just sit there and watch movies. You know, and every now and then, they might have to kind of get out and adjust something, but basically, they drive themselves. And the cost of this, is this something that will have worldwide implications, or is it a U.S. industrial farming type it's, application? It's, it's absolutely global. I mean, the, the world is becoming... Um, you know, the sort of big ag is, yeah. has spread everywhere, but this is a way to increase productivity um, and, uh, you know, with, without, without adding more people to farming, which is just not going to happen. And so, so you've written about industry. We're talking about big data, which is driven, of course, by Moore's Law. You've written about industries that have this kind of Moore's Law acceleration. How does the drone industry, how does it sit behind the linear mechanical progression of the real world and the Moore's Law progression of the virtual world? Um, the, you know, I, so, so, the, so when I went down the rabbit hole yeah. after my, after I was like, how, you know, 
there's been like a few times in my life when I got chills and I said, Some, everything I know about the world has changed. Um, the first was the first time I used the internet yeah. in, in 93. Uh, the second is when I went to China and lived yeah. in China from 97 to 2000. Yeah. You were there around the same yeah. time. That was like, whoa, everything I thought about, you know, the ascent of the Western way was, was wrong. 9-11, sadly, mm-hmm. um, did it. And the fourth time was when I sat there with my children around the dining room table and built a drone out of Lego. And I said, this should not be possible. These are cruise missile controllers. By the way, technically, they are regulated as, as weapons and export controlled. And technically, we weaponized Lego that night. And you're still at large. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I thought the congressional hearing to, was with my nine-year-old explaining how, how exactly that happened. Um, but um, so I, I was like, what? how is it possible that we did this on the dining room table? That should not be possible. And I, years later, I figured out what it is. It's, it's, it's this. It's that basically Moore's Law is moving faster in the smartphone than it has ever moved hmm. in history. What's going on here is not just, you know, inside your phone, every one of you have this in your pocket. You have an autopilot in your pocket. With the right cable, you could fly a 747. Um, because it's not just the processors, it's the GPS, it's the cameras, mm-hmm. it's the sensors, the gyros, the accelerometers, yeah. the magnetometers, the wireless, the batteries. All this stuff right now, thanks to the economies of scale of Apple and Google, etc., is moving faster than technology has ever yeah. moved, in, at least in, in, in my lifetime, maybe ever. And, that's, and, and they all, those components all have application outside of the phones mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. So th- this is why you can buy a drone for $500. Yeah. This is, this is transformed robotics. Somebody intentionally or unintentionally just made a droid sound. So they're, they're, yes, thank they're you. Giving, <laughs> giving support. On a related theme, you are now not simply a, a manufacturing mogul, but you're a manufacturing mogul with factories in, in uh, Mexico. Yeah. You've written that Mexico is new, the new China. Explain that point and what your experience has been running a high-tech uh, facility in Tijuana. I'm first to explain it with, a, with the, uh, the uh, blanket apology of uh, journalistic hyperbole. <laughs> it's not quite the new China, um, but it did make a good headline. Um, so, uh, so as I said, I, I lived in China, and I, just, I was blown away by what's going on in Guangdong and Shenzhen and Dongguan and places like that, and recognized that you know, the density of, kind of engineers and components was really unmatched. Um, that said, um, uh, those technologies, manufacturing technologies, are are becoming more automated, and as they become more automated, they become accessible to everybody. So 500 years of globalization has been driven by labor arbitrage, cheaper and cheaper labor. Yeah. And, but at, you know, more recently, automation, and especially you know, advanced robotics, is taking the labor component of products down yeah. to almost nothing. Um, at this point, when the labor component of a product is like 1% or 2%, we all buy robots for the same price. Yeah. Now you're like, why am I shipping this thing 12,000 miles to get like another, yeah. another couple percent? So I think at the last... 500 years of globalization were driven by money. Mm-hmm. It's cheaper and cheaper labor. The next era of globalization is going to be driven by time. Faster and faster innovation. The way you do that is with yeah. short supply chains. So, so the reason we moved from China to Mexico, partly because my, my co-founder is, is uh, uh, a guy I met on the internet who turned out to be a 20-year-old high school student, uh, high school graduate <laughs> in Tijuana. Um, by the way, all, all, the, all, like, all the best people I've met, I have met on the internet. I call that a, non, a non-generalizable solution, um, but it works for me. Um, uh, so this guy happened to be from Tijuana, and which I had thought of as being drug cartels and cheap tequila. And um, now most of my team is from Tijuana. They're brilliant young engineers. Mexico graduates more engineers in the United States. Uh, Mexico's number one export is not what you think it is. It is instead electronics. Mm-hmm. Um, those flat screen TVs and everything you buy here are made in Mexico, as is your, probably your car and your, 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 your dishwasher. Mexico is 
um, Foxconn, Samsung. Yeah. You know, you want to know where the closest thing to Shenzhen is um, in you know in this hemisphere, and is Tijuana. How many people have been to been to Shenzhen in China? It's it's my favorite city there. It's where all the man, the uh, big manufacturers are. It's it's a great place. Um, a couple of sort of lightning round questions before we involve the audience here. Um, there's been a lot of news in the last, say, six months about pizza delivery by drone, this sort of, you know, drones of the new FedEx. How should we think about that? Taco, burrito yeah. bomber. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, not the proudest moment for journalism, I would say. Um, let's just say that, A, it's illegal, and B, it's incredibly stupid. So let me just kind of like, just visualize what a drone is. This is a quadcopter or six-bladed yeah. or eight-bladed, and I say blade, I mean blade. This is a flying lawnmower, okay? <laughs> and it's now going to deliver your taco. And you know, God, help, God help us if there happens to be, for example, a child yeah. nearby. You know, zzz, squash. Um, so um, there's a reason why this yeah. is illegal. You know, you don't... Robots and humans should be as far apart as possible. We love agriculture because there's no people yeah. there. Um, uh, it is... The FAA uh, uh, does not allow the use of drones around built-up areas and people. And um, this, I think, is going to be illegal, um, you know, for good reason for a long, long time. So let me press you on the idea that, that we will forget that drones were ever, ever military uh, 20 or 30 years from now. Um, do you... Is there not some privacy, intrusion, uh, generalized terrorist, et cetera, threat that you see coming from your beloved drone technology? <laughs> my, okay. Now it's all my fault. Um, so again, you know, um, uh, we have, I mean, you know the FAA better than anybody. Um, the FAA's primary mandate is safety. Um, there's an interesting regulatory paradox, which is the, um, uh, the FAA controls the airspace, the national airspace, and is all about safety, avoiding collisions and things like that. Meanwhile... Um, it has no jurisdiction whatsoever over privacy. Yeah. Privacy is controlled by local jurisdictions based on what's called reason, uh, you know, the um, uh, reasonable expectation of privacy. So I live in Berkeley. Berkeley is attempting to ban drones um, on privacy <laughs> grounds. Um, I love it. <laughs> um, uh, um, however, um, you know, the legislation, and this, happened, this is now in 52 or 54 cities in, 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 in America, it always happens the same way. Some well-meaning legislature says, hey, I'm concerned about privacy. They introduce a bill to ban drones, and at some point, the general counsel or the lawyer says, we don't control the air over Berkeley. 16, you know, if you've got a decent vertical leap, you're in FAA territory. You're out of Berkeley. So... The FAA, the, you know, so, so privacy is local, the air is national, um, the FAA has no mandate yeah. over privacy, and your local jurisdiction has no mandate over the safety of the airs, and so, you know, that's the paradox we find ourselves in right now. I think what's going to happen is that basically there is a rule that's been in place for decades, that, uh, an FAA rule that says you mustn't fly over built-up areas. Flying over our backyards within is within a thousand feet, etc. Yeah. Um, uh, well, I mean, without, for, without for, a, for actual airplanes, you have to, you're supposed to say a thousand. You're feet supposed, yeah, yeah. For, for manned aircraft, yeah. you're over a thousand feet. For unmanned, you're under 400 feet. But you have to stay away from built-up yeah. areas. So this has been illegal. Or it's, it's, a, it's not a law exactly, but it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a regulatory guideline. It's been illegal for decades. It will continue to be illegal. Anybody flying over your backyard is breaking FAA regs and is subject to a ten thousand dollar fine today, and probably will be for a long time. As a former resident of Berkeley, I say myself, what it should outlaw, as should all other cities, is leaf blowers. That's, that's where all the regulatory ire should be directed. So one final question for me. Um, as you survey the things you're trying to solve now, the technological uh, problems, which one is sort of, are you most excited about how it'll be once you solve that? Sense and avoid. 
Huh. Sensitive void. Um, so our drones are. Um, so why? There's the only reason to have a human in a cockpit right now. By the way, you know humans are distracted. They fall asleep every now and then. I'm sure you're an excellent pilot. Never blink, but some pilots blink. Um, I, you know the only reason to have a, a pilot in the cockpit is for sensitive void awareness of what's yeah. going around. So even if the air traffic control doesn't tell you about it, and transponders don't tell you about it, and radar doesn't tell you about it, there's somebody who's looking around, making sure your plane doesn't hit something. Um, uh, you take the, air, the, the, the pilot out of the, that loop, and now you need something else. You need sensors. Now, the good news is that once we crack this one, we can do a better job than a human. Um, imagine imagine that, um, that we can cover these drones with basically a 360-degree field of, of, of cameras or other optical sensors that can not only never blink, Never, never, never lose attention. Are looking all, spherically all the time, but it can also see in in, um, in parts of the spectrum that you can't mm-hmm. even see. Yeah. They can see at night. They can yeah. see heat, um, etc. Um, if we can crack that, the you know the the, the you know a, a superhuman sensitive void that can not only avoid other mm-hmm. aircraft, which transponders can yeah. do, but can also avoid trees and birds and all yeah. that kind of stuff. That would be awesome. Yeah. Who has a question for Chris Anderson? Uh, if you raise your hand, the microphone will come to you starting back here in the very back row and then over in the middle. Yes. Daniel Simon, Onyx Pharmaceuticals. Can you talk about some of the security concerns, sort of the ease with which you could attach explosives to drones and fly them over appropriate targets? Yeah. Appropriate targets? You know, I mean, I get this question all the time. I mean, this is like the number two question, number one, one, number one question being uh, robotic drug mules, um, which, by the way... <laughs> which I we, high-mindedly so, stayed away from. Yeah, exactly. Since we're, in, <laughs> since we're based in Tijuana, people always assume that we'll be used by the drug cartels. I actually had somebody who, who, who actually you know, knows somebody who knows somebody who knows something about, about drug cartels, and they're like, it is, you know, getting drugs across the border is not hard. And, you know, and the, and the, and the you know, this small kilograms you could carry is just not worth it. Um, but, but um, so what you're describing is, is um, so take explosives, for example. These things are really small. Um, they can carry about a kilogram. Um, uh, so, uh, it to, you know, they are remote control aircraft. We've had remote control aircraft for 40 or 50 years. You, you, know, you have been able to fly a small remote control aircraft with a bomb into a, high value, into a, into a target for my entire life. Um, nothing has changed about that. These happen to be able to, these don't require flying, they fly themselves, but it's essentially the same thing. They're remote control vehicles. Um, people don't do it because there's a lot of easier ways to get, I mean, FedEx, for example, is, is a pretty good way to deliver small packages. Um, so I, 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 you know, so I, I think it's just too complicated. It doesn't really solve a problem. And typically, these things, things are more used for surveillance. So when you look at sort of drones that get in sort of the bad guy's hands, they're typically Hezbollah and people like that who are using them for surveillance to kind of look back, you know, to kind of you know go over the you know Israeli border and to you know to to kind of you know try to even the uh, even the odds on the on the surveillance front. And that actually is a. I mean, you know, everybody's got drones right now. Um, good guys, bad guys. Our company uh, is open source. So we took drone technology and uh, we open source it. We give it away. We put it on the internet. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> we have time for one more question here. Yes. Yes, sir. And wait for just one second, if you like. Or three seconds. Um, as a San Diego entrepreneur, um, I'm fascinated by the basically mile-long supply chain that you guys have built yeah. uh, at, down at Otay Mesa. Yeah. Can yeah, you talk exactly. just a little bit about that and thank what you. that yeah. may mean for this area? So, um, yeah, thank you. Um, you're, you're, you can, uh, we are 
San Diego entrepreneurs as well. Um, so uh, uh, we have um, one facility that's actually just moving now to uh, to Otai, and another, and which is the engineering. Um, uh, facilities in Otay, and then the manufacturing facility is across the border in Otay, Otay Mesa. Or do I have those backwards? I, 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 anyway, um, so um, what this what this represents is um, it's really kind of cool. I, I, I go yeah. back and forth all the, over the border all the time, and so on the way across the border from the U.S. to Mexico, you don't show your passport, mm-hmm. and on the way back. I've got this little card. It's called a Sentry card, and I also don't ah, show my passport. I have one of those too. I'll show you. So yeah, so this is like. So I, well, I used to live in Hong Kong, yeah. and I would commute back and yeah. forth to Shenzhen, and it was a hassle. Um, we now have at our campus. We have one part of the campus in San Diego, one part of the campus in in in, in Mexico. We can basically bike back and forth. We can actually share our Wi-Fi hotspots with it, if we, with, with like the right antenna. And, and, and now the question, and there's a factor of five difference in the cost structure. And, so the, and, and, and we started by saying, okay, well, engineering will be in San Diego and manufacturing will be in, in Tijuana. And then we're like, you know, actually, the engineers in Mexico are really good, so now we're putting engineering in Tijuana as well. And we've now, weirdly, we've now, it looks like San Diego is going to be a little bit of engineering, but a lot of fulfillment. We're going to use it as a big warehouse where the only difference being is that FedEx is cheaper in the U.S. <laughs> than it is in Mexico. So that's our, that's our, uh, our lasting competitive advantage. Uh, that's, that's, a, that's a great story. Facts in the United States. Uh, and I'm going to indulge myself with one last question for you about the arc of your career, which is fascinating. You started out as a scientist. You were a very successful journalist. Now you are a manufacturer and technologist. Has this been a progression or an alternation? I'd like to say that every step made sense, but the, the entire picture looks, looks entirely random. Um, uh, it, it has been a, it's been a natural progression. I mean, I started, I, I started as a uh, punk rock musician. <laughs> I was in um, uh, uh, the band R.E.M., which I hasten to add is, it was not the band R.E.M. It was, uh, there, was a, there was a famous battle of the bands where they won, and we were renamed Yugoslavia. Um, uh, uh, then, I, uh, so, uh, then I went to, uh, to do science, and that... Yeah didn't work, and then I went to do science journalism, and then I ended up in, 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 in media. Um, but I was trained in computational physics, and drones are computational physics. So I feel like my career has come full circle. And say drones are computational physics, how? Um, computers and physics. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, that's a satisfactory journalistic way. So this has been a much more than satisfactory uh, introduction to the world of drones, which is fascinating. Please join me in thanking Chris Anderson. Thank you. <laughs> You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.